So Chapman's an occupational surname. Its origin is English. It's derived from the old English word cheap man, where cheap means trade or barter. In medieval times, a Chapman would travel from place to place buying and selling goods. In my great-grandfather's profession when he came to America, well, he traveled between farms selling books on horseback. I guess the apple has never fallen far from the tree. My dad, when he was healthy, was fantastic at sales. And selling has always been what has turned my entrepreneurial dreams into reality. And you know where I learned how to sell? As a teenager on Sunday mornings. I've always been an early riser compared to my friends who could sleep until mid-afternoon. But by 11 a.m. I was bored, so I would grab the phone and dial up my buddy's parents, armed with an unwavering conviction to get them out of bed, to join me at the park to play a pickup game of tackle football or baseball or hockey. And by the time I was 17, I was buying goods in bulk from the wholesalers downtown and reselling them. My best sellers were athletic socks, jewelry, and calculators. Then I discovered radio advertising, selling only on commission. On a bad week, you could make nothing. You couldn't even pay your expenses, not even a coffee. But on a good week, there was no upside. And sometimes I'd do in a week what my friends might not do in a month, if not longer. I learned how to accept risk and reward. And other than 15 months after I graduated, I have accepted those terms as my desired condition, all or nothing. But what surprises me is how many people say they dislike selling. I don't know if it's the stigma shaped by Hollywood's warped portrayal of selling or the famous play, Death of a Salesman, or maybe it's just a fear of rejection or having to sing for your supper. But I tell every young person that comes to me for advice, whether they want to be the next cloud billionaire or healthcare worker, teacher, doctor, or stay-at-home parent, that they only matter by mattering to others. To do so, they must listen generously, understand unconditionally, and offer meaningful solutions to help people get to where they need, deserve, and want to go. And in doing so, they have learned how to sell. My guest today knows how to sell. For decades, he's convinced some of the top people in grocery and many who supply their shelves to do business with him. He didn't do it with lavish dinners or promotional swag or by cutting his margins. He didn't achieve it through an Ivy League degree or a network to tap into. He did it because he saw an unfurling wave, a massive wave, a hundred foot wave that was going to roar into Canada. And he jumped on it, he commanded it, and he rode it into grocery stores everywhere. His name is BK Sethi, and I can almost guarantee you have met his dream in the ethic aisle wherever you shop. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. BK Sethi is the founder and president of BK Sethi Marketing, finalist for the 2020 RBC's Top 25 Canadian Immigrant Award, over 45 years of experience in consumer packaged goods. He's worked with multinational brands in India, the United States, and Canada. But in 1982, he went after risk and reward. He started a sales, marketing, and distribution company. He specialized in authentic, ethnic-branded products. He introduced the ethnic food concept to mainstream retailers. And today, he is in the Grocery Hall of Fame. BK Sati, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. I met you, I guess it was earlier this summer. And you called me out of nowhere, and I went down, and you had this beautiful book that you wrote, Meet Me in the Ethnic Isle. You had a big smile on your face, and I realized after about five minutes, I was sitting in the company of a legend. 
And then the more I dug into that legend, the more I realized that they should put a special hall within the Hall of Fame for BK Sati. And we're going to get into that. But before we get into just this incredible insight that you had and how you commanded this wave, I think it's important for people to understand just how humble your beginnings were. Born in Pakistan, but at three and a half years old, you become a refugee. And a lot of people don't remember this time in history. So if you could take us back to why someone in Pakistan would suddenly become a refugee. Before 1947, India was one country. And in 1947, it became a divided country. One part is Pakistan, other part became Hindustan or India. So in 1947, I was about three and a half years old, and we were forced to leave that part of, divided part of India, which is now called Pakistan, and I was born there. And many of our relatives, our friends, and our families were looted and also mistreated, and some of them really killed, and my grandfather was one of them. Anyway, we could not fight there. We have to leave to save our life. My dad managed to get my mother out with three children, and one of them was in her arms, and bring us to Delhi safety. At that point, we were called refugees in a new country, which now we call our country. And when I chatted with you on stage, you also talked about your grandmother barely surviving that exodus as well. Yes, my grandfather was was killed. My grandmother, uh, they, they sweared her left arm, and she was only one arm. But she survived, and she came with my dad later on. You show up in Delhi, and I have to imagine that city is being, I don't want to use the word overrun. I hate to use that word with humans, but just trying to deal with all these people. And it wasn't like you were set up for success. I mean, the conditions you lived in, in the early part of your years, there there was no guarantees. Yes, uh, it was really a chaos on the railway stations when all the Every hour and every two hours, the rails were coming from different parts of Pakistan, now we call it. And um, we, I still very vaguely remember the situation on the Delhi airport where my, my uncle came to receive us and I, my mother was trying to contain me from running around and it was very, very difficult for her uh, having a, a, my little sister, six months old in her arms and the older sister watching the, the the clothes we brought in and my mother running after me not to run with the people. Anyway, it was good good thing and my, my uncle came in and took us to his house, which is a small one-room house. So you're all jammed in sort of one area, everybody doing what they can to survive. And I understand that your first uh, contribution to the income in the family, and maybe your first sales job was at age four, helping, I guess, to sell lemons or whatever you could get your hands on on the streets. Yes, I think uh, my, my parents did very well and managed it and kept us uh, uh, giving hope and support. Uh, my father bought uh, the bag of lemons and sold them in, on the street. Um, and sometime I did go with him. It was really nice to see my dad, how he responded to the consumers. And I was bagging the, the, the lemons while my mother was gluing the bags at night 
to sell them to the market as, as well as he was sowing something. So we didn't complain. It was the situation and we handled it very well. My parents were really a role model to show us the dignity of labor and work. We'll fast forward the story a little bit because we need to get into so much of what you've done. But the other part of it that I found fascinating is as you watched your dad grow and your mom grow and start to provide a sense of security. And so much of it has to do with their persuasive skills and their work ethic. But when it comes to you, they're saying, you know what, we, we really want you to become a, a doctor or a lawyer. And you had to prove to them selling was your superpower as well. So share with a story where where you come back and your dad looks at his mom and says, he'll be okay, he can sell. It was great. Well, like all parents want their children to, to be professional and be more um, advanced into the, and especially field was an engineer or a doctor because they are, those are dignified uh, professions. Somehow, I only all my growing up, I watched one model, role model for me was my father. And he was a great salesman. And I hear his stories. I he, I observe him, what he is doing. I ha- I never found an interest in engineering or doctor. Because within me, I said, everybody is a professional if he does his job as a professional. I could be a professional salesman, so you could be a professional engineer. So there is no difference. My inclination was in sales. And when my dad sent me to, in his, uh, I was 17, sent me out to Calcutta to sell cheese. And it was a very, very big challenging because I've never been to such a big city and never been to a cold call. I had the samples and I made, and I made good sale, a very big contract with them. And when I came back and I told him how I did that, how I brought in other line of uh, products also from Calcutta, I remember him saying to my mother, he may not become engineer or a doctor, but he's not going to starve. He can make a living very fast by selling. You must have felt so proud because there's, you know, someone that is absolutely legendary in his skills, realizing that once again, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. So uh, so what is interesting is you go off and I'm going to move the story forward. You go to the Delhi School of Economics, and then you decide you want to study in the U.S. and experience life. For someone that had been uprooted, finally getting stability, had an opportunity to really establish strong roots, what made you decide you wanted to uproot those roots and see part of that world? Advancing or growing is not uprooting, but actually moving with the forward. And when we in the Delhi School of Economics for, for my business management courses, uh, all we studied, even in our case studies, we studied American brands, American companies, and Peter Drucker, uh, John Deere Company, Campbell Soup. Those were the companies we were being taught. And I said, wait a minute, you know, then why not I should go to the source where all these things are being innovation and the discoveries are being made? What really triggered, and within about six months I was, I was in U.S., is that I had an opportunity to work with a management consultant of Union Carbide Company to work with me for three days. In the second day, he said, what are you doing here? I said, why? He said, you should go to United States. I just came back from New York and Columbia University, did my MBA. You have a better future there. 
I do not know what he saw at me. I came back after that tour. I told my dad I'm going to go. My dad says, okay, if you wanted to go, let me see, but I want to do it very properly. You got the admission in a university, I'll finance it because it's very, very expensive. Very few people were leaving for U.S. because it was expensive. And I did. And he, he did everything, squared every penny from everywhere he could do. And he financed in and sent me to school. So you do your MBA in Michigan, and then afterwards they give you a year to work, and you work, and you're enjoying life. And then the visa ends, you got to go back to India. But somehow or other on the route, you visit a friend in Canada, which I'm so happy that friend invited you to Canada because you've done so much for our economy. And I'm interested, you know, somebody from India, number one, when you got to the States, did it live up to what you imagined it would be? And then the second follow-up question, and when you go to Canada, did it live up to what you thought it would be? I'm just curious about perception and reality and how someone of your age would look at those two parts of the world. Uh, I found whenever I landed in Canada and lived here for the weekend, about 10 days or six days, it, it was really very quiet, very nice, uh, very not that fast as U.S. or competitive felt like. It was a very nice place to live. But in terms of opportunity, yes, there's lots of opportunities. Opportunities are always there. One has to seek them go after them, and they, they can get it. So I'm not worried that part, but I just wanted to understand the life because I did not have any intention to stay here. Just became by luck. I went in for immigration, and I got the immigration accepted in one day, but I could not leave the country till all the paperwork is completed, which took one and a half year, and I was stuck. I couldn't sit home. I started a BKCTN company, started importing and brokering uh, seafood from New York, which I knew the guy from India, uh, and he's uh, and he's based in New York, and he gave me a canned tuna fish from Peru and stuff to sell. And that is what I was looking for, and I did very very well. Unfortunately, could not proceed further because there were uh, foreign exchange uh, regulations or differences between U.S. and Canada, and I wasn't fully aware of all those things and. He lost money and he said, listen, I can't do it. Then I said, canned fish. I sold the canned fish to national grocers. And unfortunately, with a big food broker called Philip Green and Company, and he may raised hell that this new guy come in and selling the product, which I'm selling before under a different label though. But then he stopped the supplier because he was a very big customer of his not to supply me. So we could not supply to national grocers. But that was a setback. But I'm, I don't complain. That's fine. We learn. You, I, I kept on moving on. You know, it's an interesting lesson for people that, you know, you're dealing with entrepreneurs is very often they're faster, they're better, they're more creative than the multinationals. And the card multinationals often play, or in this case, a big broker played to BK is size and scale. I had this relationship. This is my contract. So instead of them innovating, they try to force the market to a standstill. What I love about what BK just said is the fact is those are lessons. That's what happens. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to learn from it. So after you get your permanent residency, you go back to India, you get married, you have a child, and then you come back to 
Canada. How does your wife even comprehend what are we doing moving back to Canada? I have to believe in India back then when we didn't have the internet, most people might have thought of Canada as the great white north. Or was your wife saying, I'm willing to do anything because we're building a life together? She supported me fully right from the beginning. And uh, she enjoyed it. She went to George Brown right within about, I think, first, second month. She went to George Brown, uh, took some courses and started working for Simpsons uh, in the accounting department right away. And then she had the, the baby. And then after baby, she went back to work and supporting the family. And I continue looking for opportunities to grow my business and grow myself, as well as I, I have my opening open mind to see if there's a good opportunity to learn the business and get a job. It took a few years to get the job uh, with McDonald's Tobacco, which was part of the Reynolds Tobacco. And I worked with them for about seven years in the marketing and unfortunately, the tobacco restrictions and everything was coming and the business was going down and my age was growing up. And I knew that if something happens, I'll be the first one to say uh, golden handshake. So I said, no, let's go back to my BKSATN company and let's start doing the business because I, by now I have developed very, very good relations with the wholesalers, tobacco wholesalers and general IGA stores and small stores and, and others. Uh, so I decided that I should take this opportunity. And my wife said, perfect. I'm, we don't have any liabilities. You have a car and I have a salary. Don't worry. Go ahead and do it. And we did. 13th of February, 1982. And what advice can you give? I love the fact that you can still cite that date, that morning. I bet you know what the weather was like. You probably know what you were wearing. I mean, two questions for you, BK, which I've never asked you before either at the coffee shop or when I've interviewed you on stage, if you had been in a different sector than tobacco, let's say you had been at Pepsi Cola or Unilever and succeeding, do you think you would have left and done this? Was it the sense that you saw the writing was on the wall and you had to make a move? Or was it always inside you to say, I want to be my own boss? Yes, I was always had that in while I'm working I'm also on the side doing the business because one day I want to do myself what I want to do. I want to control my own destiny. I want to do something unique, something contribution to the society rather than only being. The thing I I always said that if somebody is giving me $1,000 a salary, he must be getting $1,000 plus. Otherwise, I wouldn't be the job. So if I can produce 1000 for myself and he can get a cut on it, why not I produce myself? And that's where I want to be working for myself. So where I want to move the story now is you write this incredible memoir, Meet BK in the Ethnic Food Aisle. And here's what Amazon's description said. With a passion for food and an innate ability to sell, BK offers a heartfelt inside look at how his own experience as an immigrant to Canada and his relentless hard work left him perfectly placed to grow a much-needed market for a country with a constant influx of people from around the globe, ethnic food. Meet BK in the Ethnic Food Isle is a memoir of a man who saw and seized opportunities throughout his life, loved his family, and offered a taste of home to immigrants and a whole new world of flavors to all Canadians. Sounds so simple, BK, but I've been in the, around the grocery industry my entire life. For every foot of shelf, there's a thousand brands that want it. 
the power that a retailer has, the demands they make to access the shelf. I mean, consumers don't realize it costs money to list that product, costs money to merchandise, to put it on display, to put it in a, you broke every possible rule in grocery, not in a sense of, uh, it illegal. You innovated and had these grocers coming after you. So I want you to share with this audience this journey of where you saw this wave starting to break and you not only jumped on it, you rode this thing as it grew every year in powers, more and more immigrants, and you invited some of the top grocers to join you and to meet you in that ethnic food aisle. Yes. When I, when I started the business, I wanted to be in food business, but I could not find a good brand. I tried to get some brands and I I see the opportunity of the immigrants coming in. Prior to the 82, early, late 60s and early 70s, we had the Europeans coming in. And prior to that was Italian and Greek and then Europeans coming in. So in the grocery business, I saw a specialty, special food aisles or imported food aisles. I said, how can we basically take the opportunity of growing the business within this growing community? And there was a, a study done by Canadian Race Relation Board, as well as other studies coming in saying that the number of immigrants coming to Canada by 1995 and 2000 is going to be so much. Like it was approximately, I think, about 11% at that time. I looked at that number and I said, sure, there is an opportunity. These immigrants are, are hard workers, first time immigrants, and with the families, they come in, they sell everything to, for a better life for their children. But unfortunately, they cannot at this age change the taste and they want their own food and how we can actually help these newcomers to assimilate into the Canadian society. And the only way is that instead of going to their own ethnic store and speaking their own language, you're talking their own thing, why not you bring them to the mainstream supermarket where they learn the culture, learn the way the, the Canadians live, and they assimilate easier. So I found the brands these people are looking for. This is a great thing to see that if you can associate yourself with the brand, like if a Canadian goes to Japanese supermarket and finds a Canadian maple leaf, maple syrup, he will feel very good that, oh my God, they carry Canadian maple syrup. Okay, great. So let me see what else they can. So now you got his attention. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get the brands from China because that was the biggest segment of consumers coming in. And I got the brands from China. I got the brands from Puerto Rico. I put together the planogram and selling to the mainstream was very, very difficult. They did not understand the ethnic food. They did not understand the ethnic consumers. So I heard all the objections for the first six years. And we do not know this. We do not have the packaging. We do not have the pricing. We don't know the slow turns. So everything thrown at me. I said, okay. I went back and put together a package for them. I said, I'll give you the planogram. I will give you the product. I'll give you the pricing. I'll give you the promotions. I take care of everything. All you do is collect profit and get these people into your stores and sell them bread, eggs, everything else. Why don't you want this? Finally, Food City, actually Asha Foods, gave me a break because I was already selling to IGA as a jig and other independent store, delis, 
meat markets, butchers, everybody. This happened that once I opened it up and then slowly it growing a little bit, but the really boom came in in 95 when I started giving them the, the future of the ethnic business. Every media, every TV, TV radio station and paper were taking my interviews, my, my questions like you're doing it, same thing. And I said, I can guarantee you that this is what's going to happen. If you don't do it, you could be uh, feeling uh, left out. And finally, and uh, luckily also 95 and 96, 97, Walmart came in. And Walmart, I, they said, you are our supplier for only exclusive supplier. You help us out. And we did. And I developed their ethnic business throughout the country. So it did help me uh, getting the exposure. By 2000, virtually every major supermarket from Victoria to Newfoundland carrying some ethnic food, not a whole thing. Not like right now. Give me the space and I'll give you the turns. I'll give you the profit, which I did. I promoted, I teach them what the product, what pricing, because there's the big product. The problem is the ethnic distributors will go in and sell everything they carry in the warehouse. I will sell them only what the neighborhood, like in Markham and Richmond Hill and, uh, and, and Brampton and Mississauga, what is the concentration of ethnic people? And that is what I will sell. How did you do that, BK? Because, you know, we're not talking about today where you've got artificial intelligence and computers that are doing all this data. It's not like you don't have an army of MBAs figuring this out. I mean, a lot of this is just instinct, isn't it? Or you can say the street smarts. You have, all you have to do is that take the this data given by Toronto, City of Toronto, but they give you the wards, ward seven, is this percentage of Filipinos for Ward 8. Is the, all you do is read that and saying, listen, man, your store is concentrated with Chinese or Filipinos or Indian. Why can't you just understand it? This is so simple. I don't need AC Nielsen or uh, Stats Canada. I need the practical. If you go into Brampton and you see 17 Gurdwaras, no church. What do you think they are people are there? Or you see mosque, no, no gurdwara. What you are saying, that teaches you, yes, that is what the people concentration is. Go to Walmart with 11 checkouts. Look at the cashews. Six of them wearing hijab. What does that tell you? They must live in this area. You've got this street smart. You're taking advantage of secondary data, but you're going up to big multinationals who like to have sort of a cookie cutter solution. You know, they want to have a preferred vendor. They want to know this is our soft drink oil, but you're saying they in fact should personalize their mix. This was quite a bit ahead of its time, wasn't it? I mean, nowadays I would say groceries getting much more focused on their local market, but you must have been fairly innovative. It must have been sometimes a pretty tough sell to say, even to an Oshawa Foods, these three stores are 10 miles apart, but they deserve three different mixes. Yes. But that is what my, my brand equity was that I was giving them direct store delivery, DSD, whatever they need. I have flexibility. I'll give you the Chinese food brands. I give you Indian food. I can give you Mexican food, whatever the concentration is. I will, all you do is give me a space. I'll give you a planner grain. I service the store and you see the results. Then you ask, I had the store starting with four feet, went to 24 feet. 
Why? Because what I told them, it worked. Only thing I, I had in my business is that I only succeed if you succeed. If the thing does not go to the cash register, I didn't make any money. And that was true in my business problem. When we return, I wrap up my chat with BK Safi. I offer my three takeaways, and then we talk about inflation and strategies for doing more with less. BK Sethi is one of the many newcomers I've covered who immigrated to Canada and then made the most of their opportunities. But speaking of newcomers, so much depends on their ability to hit the ground running, to navigate the complexities of a new country. Well, that's where the RBC Newcomer Advantage comes in. Here, new can feel like home. And many of the RBC advisors that specialize in this area have been through their own newcomer journey. They can offer you unbiased advice that goes well beyond banking. Introductions to community partners that can help you with housing, careers, children, and even mentorship services. And there's some value-rich offers. You get a no-monthly-fee banking for a year with an eligible checking account, a credit card, and zero transfer fees when you send money to almost any country in the world, and so much more. I put a link in my podcast notes on how to reach an RBC Newcomer Advisor. It's Tony Chapman, welcoming you to Canada and the RBC Newcomer Advantage. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is BK Sassy immigrant to Canada who applied his creativity, his innovation, his inspiration and perspiration to building the ethnic food aisle in grocery stores. So BK, one of the things I read in your book and and we've talked about is there were times in your life, I mean, it took forever to get these big multinationals on board, but then all of a sudden they start to try to jump on your bandwagon and some people are offering you 60, 100 feet of shelf space and you're saying, no, we're not going to start there. We're going to start small. And I want to turn that into a piece of advice for entrepreneurs to stick to what you know, the things that you know work versus at times I think where entrepreneurs fail is we get tempted by the top line or the bottom line and doing so, we lose the straight line. Yes, exactly. You're right. Because in my business, your customer is the key. If your customer cannot benefit, you do not benefit. So the customer has to, and you have to consider that this is my business. If he gives you 24 feet, that is my business. He's giving me real estate to turn that into profit for him. And that is what I consider very religiously that I, if he gives me 24 and the store does not Need 24, I'll tell him, go with eight. I know I had the remark saying, I've never seen a stupid vendor like you. You know, I'm giving you 24, you said, no, sir, eight. You know, people will jump. They'll pay me to get there, but you said no. And and one of the chain stores I went in and he said, within about, I think, 20 minutes of my presentation, he said, how much space do you want? I said, sir, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I have to give you the locations I want. And he said, no, we'll give you full aisle, 104 feet. Wow. And we'll give you 56 stores. Wow. Can you manage it? Yes, I can manage it. But I will have to select 56 stores because those are the ethnic concentration month. you got to go with the base first to make yourself strong. I can't expect all Canadians to start uh, using oyster sauce or, or chili sauce or chili garlic. So I have to be 
make my base, and then I will bring the Canadians to that taste. Just to let the audience know, this business is it grows. You've got so much respect. I saw you walk through the Canadian Federation Independent Grocer floor where we had a chance to chat and so many people coming up talking about you. So many people on my LinkedIn page saying he's a legend. So it's fantastic. But one of the things you wanted to do is to have your children get into the business and be part of it. And even as an early age, I remember there's a part of your book where your your young son is saying, dad, I just want to work with you for the rest of my life. He, he looked at you like you looked at your dad. But one day he came to you and said, I've decided I'm going to take my own path in life. He was, I think, nine years, eight years old. And he helped me picking the orders. St. Hubert sauce mixes, we will work on Saturday and Sunday. He will he'll go to my warehouse with me and Pick orders, and I used to give him two dollars, uh, orange color bill, which was great for him. He was very, very happy. And then one day, we after work, we were just lying down together on one bed, and he kisses me. He says, "Papa, I love you. I want to work with you. Same thing. I know, but I want you to please guarantee that you won't throw me out." I said, "No, but I, I won't throw you out. You can live here as long as you want." He says, "But." What about my wife? If I get married, she has to live too. I said, no problem. Both of you can live here. For one second, two seconds, and he says, Papa, there's one problem. What? He says, you have to raise my salary. Two dollars is not enough. <laughs> so inside, he worked with me. He developed the Walmart business. He grew. He did in computer science and from, from Western in he did some work with the combat, but he, he worked with me and my daughter both with me and they grew my business. But inside, he had a passion for writing. Right from the school age, he, he created a newsletter for the school in Scarborough and teacher, teachers really loved him. But I did not know his passion was writing and he was writing on his spare time. He was working with me. Then one day his writing got caught by a family guy in U.S. And without even seeing him personally, they offered him a big job. And he came to me, Papa, I'm leaving. I said, so I said, you, what are you talking about? He said, I'm leaving because this is the family guy who offered me a job. This is a great opportunity for me. I love this. I didn't like it, but I liked it inside that he has the courage to do that, something in that. Then finally, when, when I, when we things calmed down, he left for LA. He, he told me, Papa, I want to do something like you did. I create myself. I grow that I can show that I can do what you did. If I take over your business, people will say, Oh, that your dad built it. So I want to do it myself. And I have confidence that I can do it. And I'm very glad he's doing very, very well in, in that way. And your daughter, the same thing. I mean, they forged their own path. And I think ultimately, as much as I think parents are flattered when somebody falls in their footsteps, I also think they're equally appreciative and inspired when they decide to take their own path in life, aren't we? Yes, of course. My daughter got married and then she had her own family things. and But she's still in food business. She still works for uh, Bezel uh, Margarine. She loves it. 
but she did not want the complication of running a business, being married with two kids. So it was difficult. You sold the business and most people would say, you know, BK, you've worked hard all your life. You've gone on weekends and picked your own orders. You've you've become this legend. You rode this wave. It's the time to take up some golf or painting or gardening. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I can hear your laughter because you never stop. What's your advice to people to not to plant roots, but to keep moving? Life is moving. If you can't stop and I I call it retirement is retirement is different than than sitting down at home and doing nothing because I have done enough. No, you never have done enough. There's lots to do. I'm contented. I have everything I want. God gave me everything, bless me everything, but I'm not satisfied. There's so much I can do. There is so much things can be done to improve people's life, community life, newcomers, new entrepreneurs. All these people need directions. And I was lucky that I was observant right from the childhood, but not many people are lucky. They come in and, and, and they start in a different wrong footing saying, oh, this is what we want to do. I want to spend 100000 in my office, good location. No, start where you, your strengths are. Find a uniqueness in your product, your services. It has to be different. You can't just keep on producing the same ketchup and saying, listen, my ketchup is better. Every Everybody's ketchup is better to them. But I think uniqueness in your product, in your services is the key. And that is where you find the niche. And that is where BKSETI Marketing found a niche and a build up the brand being a unique brand, a package deal, growth business, everything. I think that is very, very important. Second thing is great, great entrepreneurs in, in Canada are are really uh, a guiding light for us. Ed Mervish, honest Ed. Like when he saw the Europeans coming in in 60s, 5, 65 and 7, he opened that thing for them, everything what your household needs. You know, Melasman, bad boy, worked so hard. On his cycle, he would go after the people to buy their fridges. And Steve Stavros, he saw the Europeans want fresh fruit. They want to touch the fridge and he that food terminal. You learn from these people, Jimmy Patterson. Look at from, from a car salesman to become a, a conglomerate and number 10 in, in richest man in Canada. Guy Lombardi, uh, Italian. Like look at his media empire he, he built. Marty Shulman, a doctor, a politician, a businessman, uh, wrote a book, How to Be a Millionaire. Dave Nichols, the great marketer of who created President Choice and brought up Loblaws. Otherwise, at that point, Loblaws was so way down. Anyway, so these are the things we learn uh, from these people, how hard these people work. Uh, that, that is the key to success. You know, I always end with my takeaways. And the first one is you belong in that list, BK. It's just such an honor to have you. And one of the things that you said that I hope everybody writes down is everyone is professional if you do a professional job. That is one powerful lesson in life. Don't frame what you're doing based on what other people are going to think or the badge or the title. Do it and do it in a professional way. And you're a professional. I, I love that. The second one is just a sense of street smart uniqueness. Everybody thinks their ketchup is better. 
looking at who's the cashiers in the store, driving around the neighborhood, taking advantage. All this data we're getting is paralyzing us because we're going to myopia, but you still got to have this sense of heart and intuition and street smart. And when you do and you have conviction and you get other people, that's how you can bring dreams to life. Data does not animate a dream. It's someone like BK that's going in there and saying, this is what you need. Why would you not want this opportunity? And starting. And then the final thing is, I love it with, you must be a stupid vendor. Everybody is willing to pay a fortune by myself. I just offered you it and you said no. And a great lesson for entrepreneurs is don't chase the financial rewards. Do things that give you emotional reward, intellectual reward. Be part of helping others get to where they want to go. When you do, the money will come to you. But if you just go after the financial and say, wow, this is a big win for me, it could collapse everything and actually turn into be a big loss. So BK for this and all more, every time I've chatted with you, I just put a big smile on my face going like you're this mentor, father figure, Yoda, dad for Canada. And we just got to make sure we keep sharing these Sethisms because they're just magical. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, there's a fourth and I will let the legend uh, give us one more lesson in life. You should watch your means rather end. That means will get you the end, but end might do collapse if you just follow the end that I want to get so much, a million dollar, whatever. But if you have your means right, multi-millions will come. Joining me today on Chatter That Matters is Amit Brahmi. He's a senior director, newcomer and cultural client segment at RBC. And in our pre-interview, I can tell you to stick around because this man has got purpose. He's got passion. He's got pride. And he has a lot of positive things to say about why immigration and immigrants matter to Canada. Amit, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So immigrants have always played this crucial role in shaping the fabric of Canada. In your experience, what would you say sort of that as some people challenge, do we need immigrants? What would you say is here's two or three things you really should consider before making that kind of comment? I am also an immigrant to this country. I came here in 2005. So I've lived the newcomer journey. Uh, And I've also seen everything change in Canada since uh, being here for the last 18 plus years. As we look into the future, a couple of things that I would like to remind our listeners. One of the reasons why Canada continues to grow among the G7 is because we have one of the best immigration policies where we invite talent to our country through a point system. Second, our birth rate is going negative as per Stats Canada by 2025. And we really need skilled labor. Third, if you look at any of the job sites, you will see significant shortages across various job segments for which Canada really requires talent from various countries, whether it is uh, data security, whether it is cybersecurity, whether it is nurses, whether it is plumbers. The only way we can immediately plug that gap is if we import that talent from other parts of the world who can come and live here because our current education system will not be able to fill this gap through its organic way. And that's where the newcomers who are coming to this country from all over the world, where we have a nice program, really becomes crucial and important for us as a nation. How do we make it easier for them? Because I I spend a lot of time in an Uber and I'm often talking to a newcomer to Canada 
asking him why they came to the country. And it was for the sort of the Canadian dream. And I asked him, how is it going? And often they say, I'm having difficulty having my degree accepted or my capabilities accepted. I have to go through major hurdles. Is that fair that at times we put up roadblocks versus maybe should be creating drawbridges to let them hit the ground running? Tony, you make a very good point because I really experienced that even when I landed in the country. Uh, so I came with significant banking experience. And as I started applying for jobs, one of the things that the interview would say to me, oh, that's great that you understand banking, but you don't have Canadian experience. And so now you're in a catch 22 situation. We're like, okay, I just came new to this country. I won't have Canadian experience, but I understand my area, my field, my profession. And I have now seen, I think in the last couple of months, I've seen a step in the right direction where certain provinces are saying that that cannot be the reason for rejecting somebody that you do not have Canadian experience. Um, and I think that's a step in the right direction. Something else that also needs to be done. When you look at people who are coming from different professions, whether I'm an architect in my home country, whether I'm a doctor in my home, home country, I need to go through a very onerous set of certification and exams. I think that is where the Canadian dream now just gets stretched and lost and people need to support themselves. So they will take odd jobs, whether it's in the retail or, or transportation. I think we as a nation need to look at those pieces to make pathways easier for people who come with those professional experience. How can we assimilate them and put them on their professional path much earlier? You came with banking experience. You're now working for RBC. What can organizations do like RBC? What should organizations be doing to open their minds saying, bringing people in with, with global experience, bringing people in with an incredible appetite to create a new life? It's got to be a good thing for organizations. I'm very blessed that I have joined an organization which very much recognizes that. But if I broad base it, what organizations need to understand is the fabric of Canada is multicultural. We invite people from 90 different countries who come live here and, and want to realize their Canadian dream. Uh, you made a very good point that that diversity of experience and thought that people from different countries bring in is really necessary because that's the market that today's organizations need to serve. Uh, the, the fabric of Canada is, is very multicultural. So a recognizing that I require that talent because it's an important part of my company or my organization's future. That is the market that people in my organization will be serving. So I need to have employees who represent the market that I serve. I think when you immediately take this kind of a dimension or this kind of a thought process, it's very easy for managers and teams to realize that it's important for me to have people who represent my market that I want to serve with my product or service. I guess my final question is to the individuals, because I'm seeing now that there's a growing pushback to we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the healthcare, we don't have the housing for immigration. But on the other side, there's a lot of people saying that understand the importance of being, having strength in numbers and strength in diversity. What's your advice to the everyday Canadian to have more of a positive mindset and to say that there might be a bit of short-term pain, but the long-term gain is absolutely what we needed for a country to continue to grow and to continue to embrace the kind of values and democracy that we cherish? So I'll, I'll probably just remind the average Canadian that as to why do people from so many different countries are choosing Canada. 
Well, the reason they are choosing Canada is because we are a peace-loving country. Uh, we have a history of assimilating people from various different cultures. We are probably one of the best example of a thriving multicultural across our cities. Yes, there would be short-term immediate issues that need to be solved, but they will be solved with the help of the new ideas and the people who are coming in. If we just look around, as an average Canadian, when I look around, I see multiculturalism right from the Tim Hortons person who's serving me to the person who's driving me. And that engine is growing because people from different countries are choosing Canada because it's a great long-term destination. Instead of the immediate short-term pain, if you look at the long-term future that helps our families and, and our communities to sustain, uh, they will immediately start appreciating the value of the multicultural people who are coming and choosing Canada. I often do shows where uh, the hero's journey that begins with somebody leaving their country and coming to Canada. I hope you'll come back and join me in Chatter That Matters because you are, I'm very happy you're in Canada. Just talking to you today, you're articulate, you're passionate, uh, you're purposeful, and that's what makes for a great country. So thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony, for inviting me. I really feel privileged uh, having this conversation with you today. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon.